It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. It's another self-isolation special featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Seb Stafford-Bloor from Football 365. I know it seems crass, crazy even, to talk about football in the current crisis. But forgive us our indulgence. It's a harmless reminder of the normality we once took for granted. The show goes on, though the world is still. It looks like football's short-term future is going to be shaped this week. Talk this morning of the Premier League restarting with players in quarantine camps and all remaining games behind closed doors. That's got to be the worst of all worlds, isn't it, Adrian? please no please please no look I understand that you have to have a plan A you have to have a plan B a plan C and maybe this is plan C or plan D let's hope that's the case because don't like the idea of it I think what's the rush first and foremost I know that we're all missing football I know that we want desperately for the season to conclude in a in a timely fashion but we don't need to rush this. I think I think it's it's crystal clear that we're going to be in this situation for for a good while longer. We have time to weigh up our options, and that for me would have to be the last last resort. It really would. Seb used the phrase "diet sport" on the last show, and I, I thought that was excellent. And and for me, it really would be. And 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 I think a lot most football fans would rather wait for the moment to be right for supporters to safely be able to enter stadiums and to do this properly in a short but exciting period of time. And if that's in the autumn, so be it, because we have to retain sporting integrity. And a quarantine, you know, issue where you play everything behind closed doors, it, you know, in empty stadiums on TV, it won't be the spectacle that people imagine it will be. It will be poor and I think it's well worth waiting to resume properly and it won't be fair either would it Seb you know when you get rid of the home and away dynamic because they're talking about playing on you know neutral grounds it's lost all credibility anyway yeah it's lost all credibility and spectacle Mike because I've heard a version of this I've heard is that they'll be playing them on training pitches 
which is about as bizarre a spectacle as I can imagine. From a, a sort of a broad perspective, it reeks of desperation. I understand the implications of not finishing the season, avoiding it, and the legal issues that would result from that. But this whole episode is becoming uglier and uglier. If you think about the sort of the way the information is leaking out of the Premier League, you know, the occasional brief to a journalist or leaked reports about what some other chairman said, I think the Premier League has done itself a, a huge disservice with the way it's handled this. And when you've got enough misinformation around, I'm always very, very suspicious of news management across the board, not just in sport. Aid, I suppose we've got to ask ourselves a moral question above all, which is why even think about playing football when people are dying? Yeah, no, it's the least of our worries at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, we're so far away from football right now. It's scary, but it will come back and we have to make a plan for it to come back. I just feel that, that to try and crowbar it into June or July is unnecessary. Mm. We can wait. And I think that, that most of football would prefer to wait. Sports integrity is absolutely huge. And I know it's not priority at the moment. I know it's way down the list. But what is the point in sport if you can't retain that integrity? You have to have home and away fixtures. You have to have it, I think, in the same scenario as, as we have the rest of the season. So for me, this is a non-starter, but... And, and I completely agree that the word of desperation there was was an interesting choice from Seb, and I think it's probably fair. I must admit, Harry Kane disappointed me this week with his... I know he did a chat on Instagram with, with Jamie Redknapp, which is fascinating. It was really good. But he did say, look, we have to have a limit on this. And for me, that limit is the end of June. And I was thinking, no, why? You would, he, for a start, he wouldn't say that if if he was a Liverpool player. We don't need to put a limit on it. We can worry about next season and how we're going to fit it in when that happens. Yeah. If you talk to managers and coaches, they're now putting their squads in what they basically describe as sterile bubbles. Now, they're human beings, footballers. They will be as prone to this disease in a quarantine camp as they are in daily life at the moment. So that's, to me, completely self-defeating. I think the other thing is that football has always seemed to think it could exist in its own bubble. And that bubble's now burst. It's just another industry having to come to terms with a fundamental financial challenge. Seb, how do you think football should deal with that challenge? And should charity begin at home? Yeah, it's a very difficult subject. The charity beginning at home thing, Mike, is it's really easy to slip into a mindset where we are demanding that a lot of very wealthy football players pay for everything and ditto the football clubs. I don't think that's really what anyone's saying. I think people are looking at certain examples from Europe. Robert Lewandowski donated a million euros to the sort of the treatment causes and the funds that are being set up in Germany, which is very impressive. There have been sort of similar movements in England. Leighton Oren has set up a Just Giving page, a sponsored... I'm in my mid-30s, so I'm a little bit too old to understand this. But it's basically a vast FIFA tournament. I'm not sure quite what the mechanics are of that, but it's it's a good cause and it's raised, as of last night, about £50,000. So there are these things happening. The obligation for the communities, I think, still lies with the league. We mentioned last week that some of the people that you'd expect to hear from in this situation some of the people that you would quite like to leave from the front Gordon Taylor again you know Richard Masters the new CEO of the Premier League haven't heard anything from him which is I find quite strange so it's not really a question of asking people to put their hand in their pocket and to donate vast sums of money it's you're asking people to set the tone of a behaviour and sort of to try and create an environment of benevolence 
because we're dealing in fairly rudimentary human qualities at the moment. We're looking at, you know, we want people to be looking after their neighbours. We want people to be making sure that they're, they're staying away from people that are vulnerable and or making sure that those people have enough food and, you know, have enough sustenance. So I think it's less complicated than just asking for a big check. I think it's just care and consideration. I think that some of the figureheads of these organisations, the clubs are included, the players are included, but also some of the institutions which let's be honest, get extremely wealthy off football and off football fans. I'd like to hear more from them. I'd like to hear more than just how can we make a TV mega event, things like that. I, I think that's really important. So hey, what about the German example? You've got Bayern Munich, Borussia Dortmund, Bayer Leverkusen and Red Bull Leipzig all agreeing to forego their Champions League revenue to create a 20 million euro solidarity fund to help out lower league German clubs. Is that something which could work here? I don't see why not. I, I, I like the word solidarity and 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 while I, I completely understand the perspective that, that Seb was taking there, I think this is a time for, for pulling together and, and for being nice and helping helping out others less fortunate than yourselves. And the reason we haven't heard from Gordon Taylor really is that PFA staunchly defend players and players won't want to take wage cuts. But the bottom line is, I think they might have to, and if not a cut, just to to donate a portion of their salaries. I mean, if every player that earned, let's say, over £500,000 a year had a 10% levy on their wages during this period that went into a solidarity fund to, to help out the pyramid below, it would raise an extortionate amount of money and it would save football below the Premier League, in my opinion. And now I'm not, you know, I'm no accountant, but but it would be an awful lot of money. And, and I think that gesture wouldn't, wouldn't be forgotten. £20 million from the Champions League, part from Munich, Dortmund, Leverkusen, Leipzig. Good, good gesture. Very, very good gesture. And I'm just hoping, and I think we said this in the last show, I'm just hoping that the clubs that the league are still stewing over what is the right thing to do rather than just um, burying their heads in the sand because yeah something needs to be done here on almost a higher plane Seb FIFA they're richer than God they love (laughs) a campaign they adore a hashtag (laughs) but what do they do this is the sort of emergency that they need to respond to, isn't it? Yeah, so let's put a figure on just how wealthy they are. So as of an estimate I found last night, FIFA's cash reserves are somewhere in the region of $2.7 billion. So they're probably more affluent than some small countries. I went through the sort of the the campaigns that Gianni Infantino has been attached to since the coronavirus began its march across the world. And it's so superficial. It's FIFA in the area where it's most comfortable, talking generalities and that sort of very unique FIFA speak that it does, where it sort of it casts itself as the great hero against whatever's going on in the world. In this instance, they're talking about, you know, they're leading the fight against something. And for me, I, I'd kind of want to say, right, well, sort of what does that entail? So are you producing masks? Are you, are you helping hospitals? Are you providing safe havens to nurses and doctors? or Or are you just using players to speak into cameras and say things like wash your hands which is very important at the moment i'm not i'm not trying to say otherwise but this goes back to what we said in, in one of the first questions lead by example actually do something mm. don't just make a viral video for 20 grand actually do something because the game survives on the basis of the world's population without the game's popularity there isn't a game 
in this, in this form. Yeah, they've got a responsibility to every nation, haven't they? So it is complex, but I'm, I make you right. Just a, a donation to make protective equipment for doctors and nurses, you know, would be the least that they could do. I think in terms of financially bailing out countries and teams it's too much really i think even for their wealth to handle but yeah that i completely agree it is very very but, but AD, is, is, i mean it's not it's not even a question of no. i'm not really suggesting that fifa write a check no. or bail anyone out i just no. think what, no. I, what i want really from them is a singular voice a like the game's monarchy in this situation because goodness knows they do in every other situation mm. that presents itself <laughs> so now, now is maybe right. the time to <laughs> To, to lead by example in the sense of, right, when are we starting this? What's important? And you dictate the tone. You say to organisations, for instance, like the Champions League, like the Premier League, no, what we're going to do, what our universal strategy across the world is going to be is to say, right, people come first, everyone's health comes first, and then you can start talking about your television spectaculars. Because that's almost worth more than anything else at the moment, I would say. Mm. And, and, you know, lest we forget, when there's the perceived need to grandstand, People like Infantino can't keep away from TV studios. And this is something that is positive and it's tangible and it's within his power. And I think they need to be pressurised. FIFA need to be pressurised. I have, frankly, some greater hope from UEFA. I do feel that Seferin has taken a really realistic stance here. I think there is a broader view there. But certainly, Seb and Aid, I, I have you both right that we need to do something really profound at the mega global level. Mm. Let's translate that down, if we could, Aid, to mm. a world in which you knew as a player, the non-league game. What do you think has been or will be the impact of what seemed to be the cursory abandonment of their seasons without real due consultation? Well, this really angered me. It did. I think that the FA and, and those people that made this decision to expunge the season below the National League North and South, I think they've let down thousands of of players, staff, supporters, as if none of what they do matters. And, and it really does. And it was a rush decision, in my view. We've just been talking about the Premier League and what they might do moving forward. UEFA too, the FA just very very quick to just to, to just call it call it a day, and I think there's scant regard really, or it's just disregard for the efforts of the teams up and down up and down the land that have put themselves in a position of growing their clubs and and to, to take the next step. A couple of examples: Jersey Balls, they'd won all of their 27 matches in their league, the combined counties league. They were 20 points clear at the top, denied. South Shields, Northern Premier League, runaway leaders really, 13-point gap, about to make that step into the National League South, been denied it. And it just it just seems like we could have all have waited. We're, we're waiting for the EFL, we're waiting for the Premier League. We're all saying, even UEFA, Seferin said, if it means picking up this season when we should be starting the next season, that's something we need to consider. Why couldn't the FA let that run and run with those steps? Financially, you can press pause. You can press pause. These Most players at that level have jobs. Most players at that level do not rely on their football money. If they have to press pause and say no football money in the interim period... You could furlough them, as we've heard from, you know, from, from the Chancellor, the, the sort of new phrase there that, that's come into play. Footballers could have been furloughed. And we can pick up again in August, 
in September. So no, it really, really did anger me that call, and the ramifications of it could could rumble on and on and on, really. Because uh, South Shields, for example, have already said that they would consider legal action. Not surprised. Yeah, and I suppose the effect will also be felt, Seb, in the women's game. You know, there's talk there of of even clubs having to fold. And I suppose what we will discover in the next couple of months is the seriousness with which the men's game or the host clubs, with which they take their responsibility to the women's game and the women's clubs. What do you think the long-term effect will be there? Because you know, it's basically been the great growth industry of football over the last couple of years. Yeah, I dread to think, actually, Mike. So on Saturday, the, the WSL clubs were told that there would be no FA funding in support of you know their players and their, their employees. So from the looks of things, they are going to be dependent on the, bigger, on the, the clubs to which they belong. It's horribly ironic because, obviously, the last time women's football in this country was was in the midst of a huge growth spike it was cut down by the ban and 50 years by the way i still can't get <clears throat> around that it's an amazing thing and, and anyone who doesn't know that story would or anyone who is sort of prone to slagging off women's football on twitter for instance would would, would kind of do well to familiarize themselves with that story about how women's teams were banned from playing in men's grounds and you know sort of read into the the, the history which came out of the munitions munitions factories in the first world war it's, it's wonderful history so I don't know, I dread to think. I mean, I, I'm prone to be negative about it, Mike, because when it comes to doing things which fall outside of their self-interest, Premier League football clubs, Championship football clubs, they don't have the best record. And I was pretty disappointed to hear that the FA weren't going to be doing anything. Actually, that's a, a theme which exists in non-league too. The the Dover chairman, Jim Parmenter, was, who, whose club has uh, apparently already run out of money and is already dependent on fundraising by supporters. He gave a, a damning quote a couple of days ago. He said, some have said that the Football Association have failed to show the true leadership and gone scuttling behind their antiquated rule books to hide from reality. But I couldn't possibly comment on that. <laughs> and, and We like I, people I, like that. Well, we? I, I, I know he's um, referring to, to, to the men's game, but that probably could also be applied to women's football too. In regards to what I said earlier as well, by the way, from maybe putting a 10% you know, levy on player wages. I mean, come on. Every player can live off the, the money that they're earning. They're in less need of their, of their finances, of their salaries than anyone else at the moment. You know, we can include the women's game in, in that, in terms of the pyramid. We'd have, there would be enough money swirling around, I'm sure, to help out. Yeah. You know, we have been critical, and, and rightly so, but I suppose in the interest of balance, if nothing else, to spend a couple of minutes. We mentioned it slightly, you know, in passing earlier on in the show about this whole power of positive intent that football can have. You know, I read of, of Norwich players having a list of elderly fans to contact, Palace checking on their season tickets holders, Southampton delivering a 1,000 meals. Seb, do you think the connection to the community that those sort of gestures represent can continue when we, pray God, soon get back to normal? It can, whether it will is a different question, Mike. I find that a lot of this stuff happens in the public eye or is videoed and recorded and put out as, as social media content, which doesn't lessen its effect but it changes your attitude towards it i'd like football to to remember where it comes from a little bit more and so my hope is is that this acts as a prompt as a, a 
almost like a reset where people think, right, well, actually, yes, football without fans isn't worth going to. And that becomes more than just a soundbite that's thrown around kind of meaninglessly. What I hope they inspire is this realization that a club can be more than a money-making entity, that it can still be that that sort of that traditional link between community and and team and it sort of falls back into its more traditional function i'm not holding out a huge amount of hope for that but i think there are lessons to learn from this and and i hope clubs take stock of the way people have responded to even the smallest acts of charity and hopefully they can run with that in the future mm. well you've seen i'm, I'm sure aid at premier league level with arsenal and you know i know their community department is very active mm. have you ever been involved with those type of sessions or seen them and and yeah do you actually, you can see in a kid's eyes what football can mean to him? Oh, it was great. It was one of the best things that they used to get us to do. Yeah, there used to be sort of a rotor of sorts. This week, yeah, you, you had to go and visit this school or this this charity or this five-a-side pitch that had been opened and, and, and meet the kids and muck around and, pl- and, and play games with them and stuff. It, it was brilliant. I didn't get to do it a lot because I was quite fleeting in terms of my... A period within the first team, but but yeah, used to often go in twos, and it was great fun. And you don't catch many players turning their nose up at that kind of thing. I think that is something that they do genuinely feel is is important to do. Most Arsenal these days have club days as well. A lot of teams do, where basically the media come in and you do a whole lot of interviews, but there are lots of other things going on for charity at the same time on that day where players have access to uh, or are provided to charity ventures. So, so no, look, it does go on. My worry, and I, I tend to be a little bit cynical as well, I hope that, that the reset button happens and that we all see the bigger picture. I definitely hope that happens. But my worry is that the football clubs will think, hang on, we're less well off than we used to be. We should do a little bit less than we did before. So that's my fear. Yeah. One of the things that I want to try and introduce into the podcast over the next few weeks is almost a reminiscence factor. I think there's a lot of nuanced nostalgia going around at the moment. I want each of us to dwell in separate episodes on a tournament that was special for them, almost the time of our lives, if you like. I'm quite happy to kick it off. My most memorable tournament was Euro 84 in France. Now, I'm guessing, Seb, that you were probably in the womb then, and I reckon Aid, you were about ten. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I was nine. I was. I was said, please tell me you were born. Please say. Uh, no, I actually. I, I was born a couple of days after the final. Uh, so, so. <laughs> Thanks very much for making an old person feel even older. No, well, thank you for making me feel young. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a fantastic tournament, and and these memories were stimulated sadly through the death last week of the uh, manager of the champions. Uh, Michel Hidalgo. Now, that French team which won was a work of art. The midfield, Platini, Tigana, Gires, Fernandez, who was preceded by Gengini in that uh, situation, they could have won the World Cup in 82-86. And there was, I suppose they're one of those teams who grow in stature because they didn't quite fulfil it themselves. The great memories for me, there were, there were, the two semi-finals were, they were a journalist's nightmare, but his greatest dream. You know, the, the first game in Marseille, 
France won 4-3 after extra time against Portugal, coming from behind in extra time. The place was in ferment. Oh, it must have been amazing, Mike, because because I, I, I've faint memories of it. And I, and I went back onto YouTube to, to watch the highlights the other day because I knew we'd be discussing this. And, and yeah, it just came back to me the... They were 2-1 down, weren't they? With six minutes left of extra time, the host nation, this brilliant French team. And they, they salvaged it. It was, it was something else, wasn't it? It, it was. Amazing. And, you know, I suppose this is something which will make you feel even younger, Seb. <laughs> the way that we covered that game, obviously, we had an open line to the copy taker in London. So we were ad-libbing copy as it happened and rewriting on the run. Because obviously, with weekend deadlines... You know, it was a nightmare to cover, but the place itself, as I said, was in complete uproar. You know, Marseille's a fantastic place for football anyway, but this actually was off the scale. How do you reckon you got on with that in the, this day and age then, Seb? I don't, I, mean, I almost think I'd have preferred it because I, I, mean, I know I'm flattering myself. When, when, when I do match reporting, what I want really is that kind of febrile environment. I wrote about this this morning for 442, actually. It's... When, when people think of, of match work, they think of headers and volleys, don't they? They think of the old school where you didn't have TV coverage, so your job was to to actually record, report the mechanics of a game. When you have human stories going on around you and great colour and great emotion and, 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 and energy, it's so much easier, I find. I'm not saying that queuing for the one phone in the press box would have been easy or like shouting <laughs> over, the, over, over the top of 40,000 people would have, you know, wouldn't have led to a few like errant commas and full stops, but... I think that um, it's just that, that's the dream, isn't it? That's what you. That's why last week I asked you about the Maradona thing, it, it, you know, because I, I I think that's just it's such a to if you if you're if you're not reliant on replays on your desks or you know little little clips leaking out on Twitter, then you're kind of going by the human response, and I think that's better. Can, can I just ask you, Mike? Were you did you have a notebook and did you take everything down in shorthand or did you write it in, in forehand? Did you, so were you constantly scribbling and were you then dictating what you'd, you'd written down for the people on the other end of the line? Or were you effectively almost making it up as, as, as you went along? Uh, yeah, making it up as I went along. It, you know, right, it was, the, yeah. it was a, a term that we used, ad-libbing. So essentially, yeah, yeah. if a goal would go in, you'd maybe just put the scorer and the assist or whatever just so you've got a, a memory jogger. but it, And it's a strange one. I, I used to be quite comfortable doing that because you get into a flow and you get into this sort of zone where it just happens. Mm. And, you know, and that's you know, always been the thing about writing for me is that it's, it's a very strange, almost mystical experience sometimes because these words turn up and you haven't got a clue where they come from. It's fantastic. And I think when you do that, you ad lib, you won't, there's no filter. So you actually do reflect the environment and the atmosphere a lot better. And I think also, you know, we live in an age where you know, we're detached or more detached as writers from, from footballers. In that tournament, the great thing was, one, actually, and I'm, I'm almost ashamed to say that, England didn't qualify. So we could, we could actually go there almost as fans and, and watch it. And... We had a special relationship with the Danish team. They had a visionary German manager, Sepp Piontek. They won 1-0 at Wembley to qualify world-class players. Michael Laudrup, Soren Lerby, Frank Arneson, Morten Olsen, Preben Elkjar. 
they had Alan Simonson. Now, if he hadn't broken his leg against France in the first game of that tournament, I think Denmark would have been champions. And it's, it was a what-if tournament for them. They hit the post twice in the semi-final defeat to Spain. They lost on penalties. And it was Elkjar, of all people, who was, the, who was the one that you would put your mortgage on to score. He put his penalty over the bar in the shootout. And it was interesting because that was a team that Laudrup called Europe's answer to Brazil. Now, a lot of people also compared them to the great sort of Dutch team of the 70s. Yeah. They, you know, they had that sort of total hallmark, a total football hallmark, you know, the movement, the imagination, the accuracy, the passing. But again, that was a team, a bit like Brazil in 82, that people remember because they didn't win anything. And I yeah, think that's a really fascinating yeah. aspect. Yeah, no, they were well, they were brilliant in, in 86 in periods as well, weren't they? A lot of those players carried over. We should mention, really, Michelle Platini. Diego Maradona obviously owned the 86 World Cup, but he scored in every game, didn't he? Platini, nine goals in the tournament. The next closest was three. So it really was his tournament. I know that we know of him these days as a sort of disgraced bureaucrat but but the bottom line is he, he was sensational in, in that tournament wasn't he and I have to say a quick word on the France kit have you seen it Seb? <laughs> yes I have yeah <laughs> it, it is it is one of the greatest kits yeah. of all time in my opinion absolutely gorgeous and as a junior blue at the time I was at US I was nine or ten a year later Adidas recreated that kit for my team, it was reached town pretty much. It was a slightly modified version, but and I, I, I still think it's the best kit that Ipswich have ever had. So, um, yeah, well, well played, Adidas. <laughs> that was that was one of the best kits um, of all time. Yeah. So, Seb, you know, what's your sort of impression of football in that era? Obviously, you weren't around to actually experience it firsthand. Do you actually go back to it and watch it on YouTube? Uh, yeah, well, I usually, I mean, I, I'm, I'm prompted towards it by by my reading or, you know, I, it's going to sound a bit pretentious, but I, you know, I try and, I've always tried to learn as much about the game's history as possible. I think the impression of that specifically is with hindsight, because it, football's lurching towards Heysel, it's heading towards Hillsborough, and there seems to be this widening disconnect between what the game is and the fans and how the bureaucrats within the game allow their fans to exist. And so for me, it's really difficult to detach individual events, so European championships and World Cups, from what would happen later. It's kind of the benefit of being born afterwards. And obviously it makes you wise, you, you know, you, it, it makes it very easy for someone like me to kind of to observe what happened at Heysel and the, the state of the stadium that a European Cup final of all things was allowed to be played in. And so that really colours my perception of the football itself, which is hugely unfair because if you if you can distill the two apart then it's uh it just seems like a glorious age for the game just of expression a little bit of hatchet man culture in there as well <laughs> if you look at some of the footage of, oh, of yeah. diego maradona's yeah. especially maradona probably well probably 1990 was was sort of the the apex of of him just being battered on the pitch being given no chance to play but it's just it's a it's a very different game it's a more rugged game it's a more simple so game yeah, it is more simple. And I'll tell you what, what I think the big takeaway from watching some of these old clips is it was a far less athletic game. And did that make it a worse game? No, 
I don't think so. I think it was natural that athleticism would would be the next sort of barrier that that that, that players and clubs would would strive to improve on. But it was a slower game, but certainly more skillful, or just as skillful you know, you, on 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 poor surface. You know what's really interesting is because obviously my generation have the benefit of yeah fantastic tactical writing. So Jonathan Wilson's work, for instance. Now, what what I say about that age is it's actually easier, and I don't just mean the eighties. I mean the seventies too, and some of the some of the late sixties. It's far easier to spot the ideas that people had whether that means sort of the formations. And I don't just mean the, the big macro thinking, the sort of the total football, the ideas of, of how to create space and what to do with the ball and how to how to think your way around issues within your own side. I think it's fascinating because it, like, like you said, Adrian, it's slower. And one of the great issues that we've all experienced when we do match reporting now is that the game is so quick. It's so quick that it's really, really hard to actually to pause for breath and think, right, what's happened there? What what is what is what is that player trying to do with that pass? And I think that's kind of that's kind of the legacy of, of football from the sort of the seventies and eighties. Yeah. You speak there, Seb, of pausing for breath. In a sense, that's what we're doing at the moment in terms of just waiting for everything to restart. I just like the three of us to look at maybe some individuals that we'll be looking forward to seeing and maybe in anticipation of something special when we do resume. So if we could think about three players each, I'm happy to set the ball rolling on it. My three would be Raul Jimenez at Wolves. You know, there's already talk of Jose Mourinho interest in him. Frankly, is it a step up or a step down to go from Wolves and Spurs at the moment? I'm not sure. Careful, I'll, I'll ask you careful. about that later. later <laughs> but there you've got an all-round striker, 87 appearances for Wolves, 39 goals and 18 assists. That is a big money, big time player Top in anyone's player, yeah. orbit, really. And if you look at where Wolves are going, if we ever get round to the Europa League, I think they'll win it. He will be a star, I think, in what remains of this season. I think Daniel James will come back rejuvenated at Manchester United. He hit the ground running quite literally early in the season, lost a bit of momentum. This is his time to draw breath, and I think he'll come again. Mm. My third one actually is not playing in the Premier League at the moment. It's Freddie Woodman, who's playing in goal at Swansea. I've seen him develop over the last two or three years, went up to Scotland. He comes from a goalkeeping family. I think Newcastle would be mad to let him go because I think he's a first-team goalkeeper next season somewhere in the Premier League. If it's not going to be at Newcastle, it'll be somewhere else. Mm. Yeah, and Swansea got a chance, Mike, I think, on their assumption. Their running was was quite favourable and... And I know he was doing some some really good work there. So he he could be the spearhead of of even possibly a an unlikely promotion down there. So yeah, he, I I think I think they're good good calls to be fair. What about your three, Aid? Yeah, well, I've I sort of picked out three three players that we haven't seen a lot of really this season that that I do think will will come on strong again. And first one's the Spurs. I mean, he'll be disappointed, Giovanni Lo Celso in terms of the timing of, of, of all of this, because he was really finding his feet. I found him a, a, an exciting player to watch. Probably the one with the biggest ray of light, certainly in, in what was becoming a bit of a car crash for Mourinho. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> he was, just, I, I just like his energy. I thought, I thought that he, he brought so much vibrancy to that, to that team. 
very bright going forward. Obviously, tigerish without the ball as well. And I just want to see him with Kane, with Son, flying. All three of them fit and fit and on form. And I think I think we'll see a real player there. My second choice is Kieran Tierney, who many people are forgetting about here because Bukayo Saka came in and and, and did stunningly well as, at left back under Mikel Arteta. And and Kieran's he's had a shoulder problem, but for me he. He's just an outstanding left back, and we, we saw enough of him prior to his injury to suggest that that he he can be superb in the Premier League. So so watch this space. The way that Arteta uses Bukayo Saka is he's almost built around him, and if if he was to do that with Kieran Tierney, those two could could potentially even work in tandem down the left. By the way, I think Tierney at this stage of his career is a stronger player than than Saka with with a better cross on him. Which, which is saying something, given given how many assists Saka's produced. So, Kieran Tierney, watch him when we come back. And the other one's a guy that I think is criminally underrated because because he fell out of favour and because he'd been out for so long, and that's Leroy Sane. I think he's one of the best modern-day wingers. I really do. I would love to see him come strong again. I think he's got everything. He's got the athleticism, pace, skill, in product, a wand of a left foot. And the one thing maybe he hasn't got, and this might be... The reason he fell out of favour with Pep is that maybe he didn't have the mentality required to work with Pep. But but Leroy Sane will will find the right home, I think, and and come on strong. And look, if Pep was to use him when when we do resume, I think he'll make a positive difference. What about you, Seb? Okay, so Oliver Skip is my first one. Someone that could have the the football world has sort of forgotten about because he um, he broke through under Pochettino and then sort of just faded away and sort of settled into life on the bench. Just before the break happened, he'd started to put together a couple of really good performances and Jose Mourinho was very positive about him. And I suspect also that uh, Mourinho will, will use Skip to bully Tanguy and Dombele at some point. He'll, he'll use him as his Scott McTominay, which is to say nothing good, because Skip is an excellent player and a, like a really good deep man in the midfield. And I'm, I'm interested to see what he'll do next. Second, can he be better than Winks then? Just, just briefly. Uh, I, I think he's a bit different sure to Winks. I think I think yeah. Winks is a more progressive player. He will always look for a forward pass, whereas Skip is a bit more continuity orientated. And I, I think Skip's a better defensive player too. Okay. They're not on the yeah. same level. I mean, Winks Winks is international, and Skip has got Skip has got some way to go. But I think there's, I think Skip has more potential to eventually be a better player than Winks was than Winks is even. We're already talking about the game in the past tense. How bizarre. Um, <laughs> Diogo Yota is my second. I think Mike very rightly picked out Raúl Jiménez earlier. I think Yota is someone who gets lost a little bit because he's a between the cracks kind of footballer. He doesn't really have a a rigid designated position. And yet, if you look back on some of Wolves' best moments over the last two years, he is invariably one of the players that shows up for them. And it's interesting because he he isn't blessed with any one obviously outstanding attribute. He's not super quick. He's not he's not gifted with a kind of Ronaldo esque array of skill, and yet he's incredibly effective in that sort of that shallow left hand channel. You know, operating with Tino and, and Neves behind him, and and Jimenez and and Troy on the other side. It's just uh, it's it, he's an example of just how well put together Wolves actually are, and just what a good manager Nuno Espirito Santo is. And and so I I, I just love watching him. And the third is someone who also flies beneath the radar, probably because of where he plays his football, Dwight McNeil. In the beginning, when he first took his steps into into the Premier League, I think maybe he lacked a little bit of pace. He wasn't necessarily as decisive as he could be with the ball at his feet, yet he had good delivery. The couple of times I've seen him this season or last season, whatever it turns out to be, 
there's a little bit of evidence that he's starting to put together a few more bits around that delivery. So uh, his close control is better. He operates a little bit smarter when he's closed down by two or three defenders. And he's been around for quite some time now, so we forget that he's only 20 years old. And if you had, I mean, especially if this was 20 years ago, if you had a 20-year-old Premier League starter who was comfortable on the left-hand side of midfield with a very, very good left foot, he'd already be playing for England, wouldn't he? So, yeah, but I, yeah. I honestly, I honestly, I, and I hope this happens while he's at Burnley, I honestly think he could play for England at some point. He's, um, yeah, he's a terrific don't footballer. Disagree. Yeah. Well, Sean Dyche doesn't carry any passengers, does he? You know, <laughs> no, exactly. For him no, to exactly. have that amount of faith in, in a young, callow player tells you an awful lot. I suppose yeah. speaking of passengers, I still like us to do a little bit of transfer gossip because... You know, it does represent what passes as normality. Passengers, Spurs and Dombele. I have to say, Seb, I was astonished to read some speculation that Ndombele would end up at Barcelona. Discuss. Oh, OK. That's like an essay question, isn't it, Mike? Um, <laughs> I, I understand that he is a he's a very, very gifted footballer. I don't know what the problem is with his conditioning, whether it's attitude-based or whether there is a some kind of subliminal issue happening somewhere. I don't know. I can understand it, though. You watch the guy play and you think, right, well, if, if you put him on that kind of stage and you got his mind right, he would absolutely fit in. He is one of the most unusual midfielders I've ever seen in every regard, in the sense of, you know, how he sees the game, how he, you know, how he how he uses the ball, also how he runs. If, you, if, you, if, if anyone... Um, if anyone's got a bit of spare time, go back and see if you can find footage of him running. It's it's one of the strangest gates I've ever seen. It makes it makes Jordan Henderson look like Usain Bolt. So it's it's absolutely bizarre. But yeah, I mean, I, I suspect if you if you gave Jose Mourinho the chance to to sell him and, and Daniel Levy to get his money back, they might they might <laughs> yeah. take that. So I, I understand it. He hasn't earned it, but I understand it. Yeah. Hey, with your um, Arsenal hat on, um, mm. Ozil to Fenerbahce. <laughs> won't go away will it this this particular rumor look we know we all know he's got strong ties with, with turkey i think the agent as well is well connected with with fenerbahce so look I, I think there is a there is a possibility he could end up there i think it's when and how really in, in terms of in terms of the move he's got 12 months left on his deal so and, and look he'll happily run that deal down and i think arteta would use him during the final year of his contract. So that's one scenario that he plays for Arsenal in 2021 and then leaves maybe for Fenerbahce on a free. But maybe they can cut a deal. Maybe, maybe that will be the way that Arteta wants to play it moving forwards. Because Ozil is, you know, I am a fan. I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated as much as as much as many other people with, with sometimes some of his away performances, some of the, some of the body language down the years has, has frustrated me. But... He is gifted, and but he isn't the future. And I think that Arsenal probably do need to move him on to get someone younger, fresher, more dynamic in that position because it's such a key position in the Arsenal side moving forward. So yeah, maybe Arsenal will cut a deal with Fenerbahce and 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 uh, and the issue. The only thing that would pro- prohibit that move is is wages and and how how much sacrifice, if any. Meza is prepared to take. So, yeah, watch this space. But I, I can see him ending up there one day. OK, let's try and draw this to a close if we could. Again, another thing that I want to try and introduce 
It's almost like a thoughtful ending. I know we're really thoughtful chaps, and you, know, you can almost hear the uh, the neurons uh, bouncing around our skulls. Thought for the day: anything you have on your mind, any issue that you want to get off your chest, go for it. I'll start with you, Aid. <laughs> esports, esports. <laughs> now. I don't like the word. I don't like the phrase anyway, because it's not a sport. It's a game, okay? It's a game. It's computer <laughs> games. Um, now, this, this, this sort of, you know, I kind of scratched my head that, that it was on the TV just in the last few years, and, and, you know, people were turning up at stadiums or arenas to come and watch esports, and, and I, I don't get it. I, I, I know this is just this really is just getting it off my chest. I just don't get it. It's it's a you're watching somebody else play a computer game. What's exciting about that? It's not real sports. Um, well, of course, one of my the, most the, bizarre interviews, Aid, was mm. with the guy called the Gorilla, who was the <laughs> world FIFA champion. And I went to see him at his house. It was a um, a sort of a white walled, semi detached in Smethwick. And I got there about midday, and he was a typical student lifestyle. He'd only just woken up, and he sort of slouched downstairs with a cup of coffee. And, of course, he was doing his training, wasn't he? You know, he was playing FIFA at four in the morning. Uh, bizarre stuff, bizarre. Yeah, um, but obviously with, with, the, with the situation as it is now, eSports has, has come even more to, into prominence. I know that some clubs have, have set up games, haven't they? And and the quarantine tournament that Leighton Orient have organised was a great idea, and it, and it remains a great idea, but but I just <laughs> it just doesn't sit right with me as an entertainment spectacle. And what I did, and and I was curious, I thought I'd tune into one of these games, and I did tune in on the on the interweb. I think I'm just too old. And then the bottom line is I'm too old to get esports. You call it the but, interweb? But what, of course you're too old. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but the messages, the messages that you were getting, the the, the live feed, it, some of it was disgusting, and and it, and it was it was appalling. And I have read some articles where whereby play um, the, the the participants have been really abused, and you can bet on esports, which I think is wrong. I, I don't think that that should should necessarily be allowed to to take place. And you, you can bet on it on this tournament. And what's happened, I'm, I'm led to believe is that there have been accusations of people, players being threatened in terms of you need to you need to win this game because I've got X amount of money on it or you need to throw this game. And it's just a bit messy. And I, I think this is a great opportunity for eSports to, to take centre stage. But I feel at the moment it, it's going a bit pear-shaped. Yeah, but we better stress that that's all unproven. Yes. Seb, if you've heard... From one grumpy old man, you're going to hear from another grumpy old man in a minute. Uh, you know, represent the youth of the world. What's your thought? Oh, no, you know, what? I think we should make that that Adrian's bit of podcast on its own. Just, just Adrian does esports week by week. That was that was terrific. Um, I yes, it's not. It's, it's a sign of serious time. I am sick of these leaks from Premier League chairman and executives who are engaged in the conversation around when the league starts who are just nakedly expressing their self-interest. I'm not taking any any uh, issue with the reporting. I mean, David Ornstein's fantastic at what he does. And, and he carried a, a report last week about a, a chairman that, or a, someone in the room, in inverted commas, 
who said that somebody in the meetings had asked whether they thought that the government would help them with private planes to fly players back from holiday should the league start quickly. And I, I thought that, firstly, I, I, can, <laughs> I can absolutely believe that someone in that room said that. At the same time, what I would Earth say... Earth Gloucester Place. I, well, absolutely. But what I, what I would also say is that if you've got an opinion and you are employed by a Premier League club, not to promote the Karen Bradys of this world, but if you've got an opinion, put your name to it. Don't leak it out. Don't try and influence public opinion. Don't try and uh, create the context in which people either want the season voided or continued. Because I think you, I think people have to take a step uh, to, to take a, a step back and look at themselves and, and sort of it's like a, a room full of Malcolm Tuckers from the thick of it trying to trying to trying to stoke it along and trying to manipulate people. Look, if you if, if you believe this is going to happen, if you believe in uh, one way of doing something or or another, put your name to it. Stop, stop. Mm. I, I know that I know this is how the industry works uh, in, most of the time, but this is not ordinary these are not ordinary months these are fairly exceptional circumstances so it's a very very ugly spectacle to watch this kind of this this big game of chinese whispers and i think the the league is turning a lot of people off by doing that yeah i'd, I'd agree with that mm. um mm. and in terms of you know my contribution if you like it's pretty straightforward perspective is a word for our times and what we need to do is contain and destroy football's tribalism. It's infecting everything. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. And please, stay safe out there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.